This is Talkback Gardening on ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Shortly, uh, we will talk about sour sobs. And there has been a lot of success with the controlling of sour sobs, hasn't there, John? Yes, and the interesting thing is many people are now discovering that they can control their sour sobs without having to use a chemical. And we want to hear from those listeners because Mm. uh, we want to share that information. Very shortly, we'll talk with Chris Butler, who's an agricultural and horticultural consultant and agronomist, and he's going to take a look at why sour sobs are just such a a difficult weed to control. And then we'll work into the fact that uh, uh, you can use sprays, but are there non-spray methods which are successful? Yeah, I'm I'm not a big fan of using too many chemicals, particularly when I have a dog and, and chooks and things like that. You know I have a corgi now, John? Oh, wonderful. Do you still have a corgi? Oh, oh yes, yes, yeah. yes, Zoe. Oh, yeah. She's uh, four years old now. She's uh, beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so I, 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 am too, I too am a corgi owner now. Okay, so yeah. male, female. And... Female. Her name is Safi, and okay. she's two. And she's, um, yeah, they're an interesting dog. They're very smart. but yeah. Oh, absolutely. Super smart and, you know, very easy to train if you use... Oh, then Zoe, let me show you a picture. I'm just showing Zoe to... to uh, look at that. This is great radio, isn't it? We're showing photos to it, it, It's the lovely way to start a conversation when you take your phone out. Yes. And, you, and the front of your phone, of course, is your dog. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, so into the conversation you go. Well, actually, the front of my phone, the, the dog photo I have there is actually of my former dog, of, of Lucy, who was my black Labrador, who I miss desperately. Oh, yes, you and, get so uh, attached to yeah, and that, Oh, lovely. Yes, uh, okay, you've got uh, a tan one. Yes, whereas, yeah. yes, mine's just black and, so and that's, tan that's, and white. So that's Saffy dog there. <laughs> well, okay, listen, we, did, we, we need did, to get we, on with the program. We, we, we did digress <laughs> just a little bit there. And, you know, the other thing that sprang to mind for me, and this is obviously not a topic for today, but we talk about controlling sour sobs. The thing you don't tend to see nowadays in the Adelaide Hills is Patterson's Curse. We seem to have... Because, I mean, oh, it wasn't all that long ago when you drive through the hills and they're full of purple. Why is it so? Where's it gone? Well, <laughs> again, let's use sour sobs as an example. 20 or 30 years ago, if you drove through the Brossa Valley and all around there, it was wall-to-wall yellow at the moment. And it is no longer yellow now. It'll go yellow probably in springtime, but that's canola, not sour sobs. The place used to be covered with sour sobs. Now, farmers have changed the way they farm dramatically, and they have used glyphosate very, very effectively without any problems, and they're is a solution to sour sobs. But many people don't want to use spray, so we're going to take a look at that very shortly with Chris, Pre- with, uh, Chris Butler. And also, we're still looking for any um, indication of the small white snails that um, you normally find in regional South Australia in grain-growing areas. Uh, but there's a very strong theory as to why they might be showing up in Adelaide Gardens. So if that's the case for you, we'd love to hear from you as well. Chris Butler, weed agronomist at uh, Roseworthy. Hello, Chris. Good morning, Spence, John, listeners. Could we start with the difficult question, Chris? Why is it that sour sobs are so difficult to control? Proliferation, John. There's just so many of them. At the end of a couple of years, they uh, they form bulbs and they form many bulbules. That's the way they progress into the future, so a bulb shoots out and gives up a plant and then that 
flowers and then it declines in October, November. And and while it's declining, it forms new bulbs underground. It just doesn't form one, it forms many. And some of those bulbs can be dormant and some of them will erupt again next year to give a new sour sob. Aha, uh-huh. so that is when people say, right, I've got rid of the sour sob from, and the bulb that uh, is producing the lovely flowers, but uh, it's the little bulbils that are released after flowering that are causing the problems that go on year after year after year after year. Yes, uh, there's, there's normally a, a single main bulb formed. That's, a, that's quite a large bulb, but there are other bulbules formed as well. That's why we get that proliferation and, and the sour sob eventually crowds out all the other weeds around it unless they're particularly strong. But generally you find sour sobs dominate the landscape because of the numbers. My perception is, okay, you've got your big mature flower coming from a big bulb and that gives you lots of flowers and if you get rid of that, the following season, because you haven't got your timing right, all these little bulbs come up and they are the first ones that come up and they're little tiny, like little seedlings. Would that be correct? Yep, yep, that's pretty correct and sometimes they don't shoot out at all this year and they'll carry on into the second year. Uh, so even if you get rid of all of the sow sods this year, there's a fair chance you'll see a few the year after. So perhaps we should be concentrating on those little bulbs that are coming up early in the season. We should wipe those out very early in the season and then concentrate on the, the mature bulb later in the season. Yeah, I think I think you'll struggle to get separate them. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I think I think there's a, just a good time to get rid of them all if you can. And the big bulbs will send up a, a, a plant with a fairly good solid crown and that'll start to show flower buds fairly early, probably two weeks ago was about the timing. They started to show quite a few buds in the crown and, and that's the time to start on them to, uh, to pull them out and you need to pull them out and extract maybe 50 millimetres or two centimetres of, of root if you can uh, so that you, you actually take the crown out. That's why mowing doesn't work because if you leave the crown, you just get more leaves. So you're suggesting once they're about to flower, not when they're flowering, but about to flower, you can pull them out and take some of the stem with it and that will not, well give you control... Why is the timing of that so critical? What happens if you're, you're, you're too late? So you've got, you've got bulb exhaustion at that stage and the old bulb has fully expended its energy producing this new plant. The new plant's growing roots underground, but it hasn't yet formed those, those bulbs that will go into next year. Aha, and, now, and that's critical. So you pull out the old one, the mature one, um, and if you get uh, it out and it's exhausted, the new bulbils at that stage haven't formed. That's correct, yep. And the easiest way to check some of this is just get a spade and <laughs> dig some sow sobs up and you'll need to go um, 100 mils into the ground, maybe more, and have a look at what's going on. You'll often, if you're careful enough, you'll find a brown, small brown bulb about... Uh, a centimetre in size and, and you can 
press it between thumb and forefinger, it'll be empty and hollow, just a paper shell, and that gives you a pretty good indication that one's that one's finished, and you'll see that there are no new ones formed. Unfortunately, sour sobs don't have a rule book, and so they don't all come out at the same time. They're not flowering at the same time and making themselves susceptible to your method of control. They come out like brown cows. What to do? probably get after them a couple of times. Persistence, like so many other weeds, persistence beats resistance. I think at this stage, Spence, we might take questions. If there are questions on uh, sour sob control or are there texts that have come in that uh, we can work into the Well, program. look, there's some, there's, via text, um, someone says um, that they've been regularly um, pulling sour sobs out and they've just about eradicated them from the garden, which is a, a, a good thing. Uh, Ken's on the phone from Owen, who has a... Uh, not, oh, not yet. Ken will be on the phone from Owen shortly. Um, we, we had the text that we called earlier, John from, um, and uh, Chris, that um, the chooks take care of their sour sobs, so I guess that's a, a fairly organic way. But there's an interesting question as well. But by, by taking this, I know we don't, you know, and weeds are weeds are weeds, you know, I guess it depends on your definition, doesn't it? But taking sour sobs away also takes a f- source of pollen away from bees, doesn't it? I'll put that one back to Chris. I don't know that bees are uh, over-excited about the uh, pollen are from they? sour sobs. Reason, the reason sow sobs are so tough and you probably shouldn't feed them to chooks is the leaves contain oxalic acid and that's why, uh, why generally stock and other animals don't eat them so they're not grazed off. They, they do get eaten but it's not good for stock. Oh, well, that's interesting. And, uh, and I'm, not, I'm not aware of uh, any beekeepers that are really keen on putting their bees on a sow sob paddock. I've not, I've not heard that. I've known a few beekeepers. Um, I'm sure they'd much prefer a good paddock of faber beans. My understanding is that they don't set seed. That might be quite incorrect, that uh, lovely flowers, but they don't set seed. And uh, the new bulbs or the new plants that you get each year are from the bulbils, not, uh, not from seed. Or, yeah, they don't set seed, and you don't get little seedlings. That's the story, but those of us who think about it, we, we can't work out how the sow sobs got out of the first pot plant mm. and then managed to spread over the whole lower north of South Australia, um, oh. uh, all through all the paddocks everywhere, and, and you know, it's really, really hard to uh, work out how that happened from a bulb plant. Uh, daffodils certainly don't do that, do they? And and so, you know, we we think there probably is seed, comes from sow sob. It's just a very, very low amount of seed. You know, most flowers would probably be uh, sterile, but there must be some seed transference somewhere. Has, has no one done a PhD on that, Chris? No, no Spence, not... Not that uh, not that important anymore because we got rid of Southside with uh, with <laughs> well, a couple of products back in the early eighties. But wouldn't it be good to know? Mm. There, there are a number of uh, research type papers out there 
And if you want to get an argument going amongst uh, weed scientists, <laughs> you ask them, do they set seed? Which is I uh, uh, rather cruelly <laughs> did to Chris. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, there are some that say they they must they must simply because of what uh, Chris has explained, and others sort of say, look, there is no evidence of it. Mm, so and what you're saying, don't get between a seed scientist <laughs> and a sow sob. No, I'll go dangerous the, place. If you, if you want to spend a, bit of, a, a, a rainy Sunday afternoon, uh, just go into sour sobs and do. They set seed and read some of the papers on it. Okay. It's quite fascinating. Interesting. I need to come back to uh, uh, the fact that if we, I mentioned earlier on, Chris, that probably the Barossa Valley and all around where you work used to be at this at this time of the year, it used to be quite yellow, and that was because of sour sobs. And as the uh, a major agronomist in the area, I suspect you've played a major role in helping farmers overcome that, and they've overcome it using the chemical glyphosate. Could you just comment on how effective that is, and and why farmers have to use glyphosate? Be- before 1982, that's correct. Glyphosate was our first real answer for sow sobs, and. And then in 82, 83, 84, a couple of products made by DuPont called Glean and Ally were released. And uh, they were just a game changer on, on sow sobs. We could use them in crop for sow sob control. And a couple of years of those products in crop just decimated the sow sob population. And there are a couple of paddocks left, John, if you take a drive out sort of towards two wells, you'll see just a couple of paddocks later in the year, all nice and yellow, and uh, you don't see many anymore. So sow sobs are a thing of the past. Glyphosate was the first effective chemical sprayed at a specific time, but that ended up with a fallow paddock, whereas the uh, the other chemicals, Glean and Ally, were, were uh, selective herbicides used in crop and uh, and they were very, very effective. Yeah. <clears throat> Wonderful chemicals, but they're not available to home gardeners. Glyphosate is. Now, yeah. I, could I ask you, your perception, you, I mean, you make your living, part of your living, in giving advice on helping farmers use and choose the right chemical, uh, but uh, farmers' use of chemicals is very different to home gardeners. Um, what's your attitude? I mean, you're a keen gardener, I know that. Uh, what's your attitude on using chemicals in, in the, your home garden? In my home garden, I'm a minimalist. I, I, I'm a bit wary of glyphosate, but only because it's a it's a beautiful systemic herbicide. You get a little a little spray, a little waft onto your geranium, and in six or eight months later, you'll see the geranium effect coming out. And that's why farmers are really, really careful. They've got special boom sprays, special nozzles. They're uh, very careful about which way the wind's blowing and they use the mesonet to, to look for inversions nowadays because they're really responsible about how they use chemicals. Glyphosate's a non-selective, so there's not much that glyphosate won't kill. need to use it very carefully. I'm quite careful. I, uh, I use a different product, which is a... Uh, available to me uh, and commercial farmers and that contact herbicide so you spray a bit on a on a shrub and that branch might perish but the rest of the plant will be okay no well we won't so, talk about the chemicals that are not no. available to home gardeners but uh, 
just on this one, every time I mention glyphosate, uh, I will get emails, and I'm quite used to that, and I respect people have got uh, the right to be able to say, uh, you shouldn't be talking about glyphosate. <clears throat> My attitude is, if you go to the AVPMA, the people that register chemicals, they say, glyphosate is still safe, providing you use it according to the directions. What would happen if glyphosate wasn't available from a, guard, from a, a, a chemical point of view? We have a we have a currently have a farming system um, which basically is called no no till farming, and no till farming is about not cultivating the soil. There's still a cultivation at seeding where a furrow is made and a seed is placed in the soil, but outside of that, we don't no longer get a, a plough or a cultivator out and dig up the paddocks and. And that, you know, we discovered that was causing soil structure problems, chewing up the carbon in the soil by oxidation and a few other things. So we don't do that anymore. No-till farming was developed. And no-till farming is very, very dependent on having herbicides that we can use to kill the weeds prior to sowing. Can't leave the weeds in the paddock and sow a little tiny seed into the ground and have expect that to compete with the weeds which are already established. So we use glyphosate. That's probably still the principal herbicide. There are a couple of other herbicides that we use in that knockdown phase prior to seeding. But without those herbicides, we probably lose that farming system. And that farming system is a big part of farmers' methodology of reducing their carbon footprint in the production of crops. For those that send me emails, could you explain, from a health point of view, why you believe that glyphosate is not the health problem that many people do believe it is? My observations are industry observations. Mm. They're not scientific trials. But in, in observing all the clients that I've worked with for 40-odd years... Uh, they've all been essentially quite large uses of glyphosate over that 40-year period. If we were going to see health problems arising from the use of a an agricultural product or doing certain things, and in industries we see that, we see silicosis in, in that industry, but we don't see a, an uptick or a cluster of, say, cancers or health problems in, in our farmer group that have been using these products for a long, long time. And, and the controls today are very stringent. So we've moved from pretty nasty chemicals 25, 30, 40 years ago, and the companies that invent chemicals and make them have been using, have been moving to softer and softer environmental impacts, uh, safer and safer chemicals for users, in, in the system, and glyphosate remains in there having been used for over 40 years. It was before 1980 that glyphosate was released and started to be used. And so we don't, we don't see amongst the big users and, and farmers with 10,000 acres of crop use a lot of pesticides just because it's a really big area, but we don't see the health issues coming out in that group. 24 past nine is the time. Listen to ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Chris Butler, weed agronomist at Roseworthy, is with us. We're talking sour sobs. 
And uh, Roz has a question for you from Strath Album. Hello, Roz. Uh, good morning. Yeah, I don't have a problem with glyphosate, right? I'm not one of them people. Right. But, uh, yeah, anyway, um, I've had... Kakuyu, uh, is that how you say it? Yeah. Yeah, evil. You plant that, you're going to hell. Anyway, um, yeah, anyway, uh, I've been waging war on that for over 15 years, and then I had some. Uh, so, so, Rod, Rod uh, so you just need to make your point here. So, you talk, you, 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 you're going to ask about sour sobs, and you've been trimming yeah, them with yeah, a whippersnap, yeah, haven't you? Sour sobs. Anyway, when I got rid of that, I got some sour sobs coming up. Right. And I went, uh, crikey. So, I got the whippet snipper out, and I used the. I've got different heads. There's little fingers that go around, and I have plowed them off at the ground. Every time they raise their little evil heads, <laughs> I just plow them down to the ground, and it's taken three years, and I think I'm on top of it. Is that, is that, thank you, Roz. Chris, is that a good strategy? That's, that's exactly what I'm saying, that if you take them off at the right time of the year and persist, you, you take them off... Underneath the crown, which is what that implement does, that little scarifier um, does, takes them off under the crown, and then they can't form bulbs and bulbules. And and as that lady said, you know, over three years, she's really reduced her sow sobs back to back to almost nothing. All right, to uh, Christy Downs. Uh, hello, Lynn. Yeah, um, well, I've tried 50 years of trying to get rid of sow sobs, and this year I've just decided to put down newspapers and put mulch over the top of that. And I was just wondering, am I wasting my time? No, theoretically, then that, that should work because it'll exclude the light. Done, done well enough, it will exclude the light from the sow sobs and they won't be able to get any food. They won't be able to generate any food in their leaves to build a new bulb. And and so that that will probably work. The danger with um, putting paper down on the ground, of course, is you also exclude the water, and and then the organics fade away in those patches of ground as well. But yeah, it's not a bad strategy. You need to do it for two or three years to exhaust the supply of bulbs and bulbules in the soil. Could I come in on the fact that okay, m- newspaper is a mulch. And Chris, you mentioned that farmers have changed their farming systems and they no longer cultivate, which is something home gardeners can take on point of view because every time you cultivate, you bring up new weed seeds. But the other area that uh, is part of the equation is, of course, that the cereal is now left on the ground and so that acts as a mulch. And from a home gardening point of view, mulching is probably the most effective way of preventing most weeds that germinate from seeds from becoming a problem. The Achilles heel, of course, is sour sobs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's why we're talking about sour sobs control. If you can control your sour sobs, you don't have to use chemicals. You can just by uh, uh, mulching the ground, you should be able to control most of the weed problems. If mulch and sour sobs, not, not a good thing or a bad thing. Sour sobs have the ability to push up through the mulch and so that, that's why they're an Achilles heel of that system, and and they'll push through the top. But what a decent layer of mulch does is give you a stem without having to actually get into the ground that you can get under the crown and pull it out of the mulch. And that makes it really easy. Ah, so so the so so the crown is actually developing in the mulch rather than in the ground, so you can get it yeah. out more easily. 
Oh, yep. that's interesting. Hey, and, and uh, John said, don't get between an agronomist and a uh, and talk about <laughs> sow sobs. But um, Chris from Lockheel says, I'm sure sow sobs have seeds, but how else would they have started growing in my pots in which only potting mix has been used? Not garden soil, just potting mix. Pulled out, I pulled out six sow sobs out of a large raised garden bed yesterday and I felt exactly the same thing. <laughs> I thought, how did they get up here? I, I have seen them come through the drainage holes in the bottom of a pot and grow right up through the pot and come out on top. That's pretty easy to see because when you pull the pot up, you pull the sow sob stem out. But yes, I had about six or seven sow sobs in a, in a raised garden bed that's a metre high um, that I found yesterday, and I thought, how did they get in here? Well, it's, it's Pandora's box, isn't it? Well, I think probably <laughs> the top Australian authority on weed control, or one of the top authorities on weed control, is Dr Chris Preston at the Adelaide University. Maybe we need to <laughs> see if we, Chris can give us a comment on, on do yeah. sow sets seeds. Yeah. Well, uh, I, I'm sure somebody has studied that concept. Now, you'll be pleased to know also, Chris, that a text came through from a listener who says, I've been using paper and mulch for four years now. No sour sobs. They're all gone. Yep, yep, that's exactly right. Now, the other technique is with a decent, with a decent level of mulch in the garden or even without it, you can... Uh, I've got an aeromophila, a prostrate one, which sits pretty flat, and I get sow sobs coming up through it, I get my long-handled spade out and just slice maybe five, ten mils under the ground underneath the aeromophila. And I'm getting rid of the sow sobs out of that aeromophila. Uh, very hard to reach through that aeromophila and pull them out. So, so you can use a, a flat spade to slice them off just under the ground. Got to be careful you don't slice the aeromophila off when you're doing it. Well, uh, Chris Butler, I, I suspect this isn't the last conversation about sour sobs that's going to happen on this program over the next couple of weeks. So thank you, mate, and good luck with your garden as well. Sounds like you've got some work ahead of you as well. Yeah, thanks very much. Okay, see you, Spence. Bye. John. See you, Chris. Chris uh, Butler is a weed agronomist at uh, Roseworthy. Isn't that a good job to have? Because um, this is part of the reason I love doing talk about gardening and why I've become passionate about gardening. It's because the satisfaction you get from starting with a seed, watching it germinate, and then watch it develop into something that is alive and contributing to the world, if you like, both you know environmentally and physically and pleasurably, is amazing, isn't yes. it? Yes. It, 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 it blows my mind. That's right. And spending the time... Because, OK, you're looking at the plant this season and you start looking at it next year, and if you observe it, you'll find it's different. Yeah. Why is it different? Is it the season or are there other factors there? And you can teach yourself so much about how a plant grows and how to grow it successfully just purely by observation. Yeah, yeah. It's, a, it's an amazing thing, the way plants grow. Let's take some calls. Strathalban. Hello, Richard. Good morning. Uh, I wanted to ask John or tell John about uh, a, an area that I've got and a cape weed problem. I've got a couple of acres of, uh, of, of land that, yes. that I've uh, uh, initially sprayed out with glyphosate and then uh, direct drilled in uh, native shrubs, um, uh, bushes and trees uh, into that area. 
Um, and that's uh, coming up nicely. It's uh, wonderful to see. But uh, I've also got an infestation of capeweed, which has come between the rows and so on. And, of course, I can no longer spray without damaging the, uh, the, uh, the, the new plants. And I'm wondering if mowing um, as close as I can will remove the capeweed. The other thing is in the areas in between the rows of, of trees and shrubs and so on, there's a, there's a beautiful uh, natural grass which is coming up, which I can't identify, but it comes up with a long stem and then sends out horizontal sort of uh, windmills that uh, uh, I guess is the way in which it seeds itself. But I, I don't want to... I want to protect that and have that growing in between the rows in the end. Invariably, How does that there sound is a, for a problem? Uh, yes. Uh, there are weeds like capeweed. They're just uh, opportunists, and you get rid of uh, one uh, kind of uh, growth and another one will take its place. You've done the right thing by reducing the weed seed bank uh, by using by spraying them out and preventing them from, from setting seed. And that's your, uh, your ultimate aim is don't let the sour sobs set seed and then you've got to eliminate them. Is it possible? Uh, uh, Capeweed gets bowled over by a number of chemicals, but there's a new organic fertil uh, fertil chemical uh, called slasher. It's made from oils. And if you wait until the... Uh, uh, cape weeds have germinated and have got their first couple of we- uh, leaves, uh, maybe uh, two sets of leaves. And if you spray them then with slasher, and it's a kind of thing that uh, it, it just burns off the growth. And if you can control them at that very early stage, they don't have a, a, an opportunity to develop a decent kind of a crown and root system. And that should eliminate them. Now, just bear in mind that uh, slasher, uh, and there are variations on on that kind of a chemical uh, coming onto the market, but they will burn anything they touch. The nice thing with slasher, if you put it onto a new weed, within 12 hours, it's 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 dead. <laughs> it, it, you'll see it just uh, uh, curl up and die. And it, it, if it's possible to lift up your plants, you know, what I'd suggest if you're spraying, you put a little hood onto your sprayer, so that sprays the chemical down to onto the weed and doesn't go drifting around the garden and getting onto other plants. Mm. And the other area is, uh, if you can, I know you've got two acres of it, which is a large area, but wiping the chemical onto leaves, onto weeds like that is just as effective as spraying them. But I think the answer to that is controlling those cape weeds very early, just as they've just germinated and knocked them off then, and then if you don't let them set seed, you're ahead. Hey, um, Richard... Go yeah, ahead. Yeah, you haven't got a half dozen mates. You know, you can put on a barbie and, uh, you know, give them each a trowel <laughs> and, you know, uh, send them off in the rows and see, you know, have a little competition so you can dig up the most and have a barbie afterwards. I've got a heap of grandkids spread around the nation. Oh, yeah. Get all, all of them here at once. Yeah. <laughs> Again, you can get a little Dutch hoe. It's just a sort of a little blade and you just skim underneath the surface. Again, if you get your timing right when it's very small 
and they've just germinated, got uh, uh, four sets, uh, four leaves rather than uh, lots more leaves. But if you skim the ground then and cut the root system off, again, it hasn't time to develop the crown system, which if you control it uh, uh, later on, just chop the top off later on, it'll regrow. Hey, it sounds like you're going to have a pretty special area by the time all those um, things have developed, the things you've planted. So good on you, Richard, and good luck with the capeweed. Thank you. Thank you so much. To Richmond, John's on the phone. Morning, John. Good morning, Spence and John. Tell us your problem there, John. Oh, um, I have a a fuchsia um, bush. It's enormous. Uh, It's overhead height and below head height. It's quite healthy. But above head height, the branches have just died. They look like dead wood. Um, uh, would it be acceptable just to chop them off? I would suggest so. If it's a large fuchsia, it's probably one of the older uh, species varieties or one of the early varieties, and they're pretty tough. Um, I'm interested as to why they're dying. Could it be that uh, when they get to a certain height that uh, the wind is blowing them and, and that's causing the issue? It's up against a fence, John, and uh, it faces west. So I wondered that. Um, I wondered if it was getting too much sun. Uh, It's as healthy as can be right now in the midst of winter. Yes, I think that, okay, it's getting protection while it's uh, getting up to the top of the fence, but then it gets above the top of the fence and uh, it's exposed and you might find that the wind, but fuchsia has very, very soft growth. And so uh, as it's sending out new tip growth, you you find you get a a windy, buffety wind and just knocks those off. And uh, if you've got a hot uh, summer wind, that also can decimate them, whereas the the bottom section is, is protected. That would be my logical solution without actually seeing it there, John. Yep, fair enough. Okay, well, good luck with that. Oh, 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 just coming back to, can he chop them back? Yeah. yeah. And I would suggest don't do it now because it's probably uh, not in much, do it producing much growth. But towards the end of August, uh, cut it back and you can cut it back quite hard, reshape it and it'll come away quite quickly. Beautiful. Thank you, John. To Handorf, Bev's on the phone. Hello, Bev. Good morning. Thank you for taking my call. That's okay. How can we be of assistance? My question is about my citrus trees that have languished in pots. I know it's the wrong time to plant them, but I just have to get them in the ground. Is that going to be really detrimental or should I try and be patient till it's time to plant them? If you possibly, possibly can, don't do it now. The worst thing you can do is plant citrus in the middle of winter. Um, yes, I know that. <laughs> yeah, so, you know, I'm teaching grandma to suck eggs, but, uh, uh, I mean, you know the answer as well as I do. Um, I suppose you're saying, what is the downside? Yes. If, if it's possible, uh, do you have a reasonable soil there? Uh, the soil's good. It's just that I'm on acreage and I have to sort of... Uh, guard them against rabbits and dig up the kaikui, hence why they've been so delayed in planting. All right. Well, if you really, really, really have to, I would suggest <clears throat> don't put them into the ordinary ground. You need to put them into a, a raised mound. And yes. Getting probably bags of potting mix and mixing that up with the topsoil so that uh, yes. you've got a mixture of 50-50 potting mix soil and, uh, and and that should be at least a square metre of material that's raised up for each of the trees. 
And the next thing to do is wind. Stop the wind from blowing it. You need to get some uh, shade cloth and put yes. that around the tree. Uh, leave it the top open, but put, protect the wind from blowing it across. If you've got a raised bed, you increase the drainage and uh, might get a little bit warmer soil. And if you can nurse them through... If we're going to get lots and lots of wet weather, I'd be putting some plastic over the root system so that the water doesn't get down and saturate the soil where the root system is. Okay. My other question was, my, a lot of my soil is waterlogged and I'm needing to plant about 200 tulip bulbs. I think I'm going to have to pot them. Uh, Bev, I really would urge you. I mean, the likelihood of you being successful with the citrus is probably about 30% um, and it just would seem to be a pity. Um, put them somewhere where they are uh, in the sun, it gets the morning sun, out of the wind and if you plant them in uh, springtime, your, your success rate goes up to about 70 or 80%. This is in reference to tulip bulbs? Oh, no, I'm still talking citrus. Oh, no, so, so, so Bev was just asking about some tulips she wants to put in as well. Oh, okay. Well, if you put tulips in now, um, well, yeah, do it. Because particularly in, if up in the hills, it's late. Mm. But the thing is, this year's flower is inside the bulb. If you don't put them in the ground, uh, next they'll just dry up and next year you won't have anything. But at least if this year you plant them, you might get a flower, it might be on a very, very short stem, but at least you get leaves. And what you need to do if you want them to flower next year is to feed, feed on often, put them into good soil and on a fortnightly basis uh, put on a half-strength foliar fertiliser. And if you do that, you might get some flowers next year. Babe, good luck with that. Thank you. And you'll have to let us know how you go with the citrus tree because you know, I know that... It's always been advised that you don't move citrus in, in the winter. It is 16 to 10. You're listening to ABC Radio Adelaide, South Australia and Broken Hill. Uh, Rick's in Brompton. I'm assuming, Rick, that you're on a, uh, a reasonably small plot of land, so you want to try and create a, a little tropical garden. Is that right? Yeah, that's right, Spence. Hi, hi Spence, John and listeners. Yeah, yeah, I just rang in to uh, just ask them some advice on how to create more of a tropical paradise in a small um, uh, row cottage uh, house that we bought from Bro in Brompton. Uh, uh, yeah, so a, uh, a nursery person said, hey, have you thought about tro uh, creating a tropical paradise rather than ferneries, etc.? So okay. any advice on that, please? Uh, you need to go to a specialist garden centre that's given you uh, uh, the kind of information you're looking for to try and give you an answer to that in two minutes or one minute is is just uh, I don't think practical, uh, Rick. So uh, you so you want to you want to grow stuff that you can use in the kitchen as well, don't you? That's it, mate. Yeah, yeah. I, uh, so they said apparently you can plant three fruit trees in one hole. Is that right? Absolutely, yes. Um, rather than put them in the one hole, if you put uh, say three fruit trees and you put them about. 20 centimetres apart, they will grow as one tree. That's a very effective way because... But you, you need to make sure that you put, say, three apples in or three pear trees in, or, uh, but don't put um, an apple and a peach and uh, a plum because they all have different growth habits, whereas if they're all together... And so if you're, say, doing apples, you'd have an early, mid and late season maturing apple and that would give you your fruit over a period of time. As for your herbs, there's a lot of herbs available 
which uh, give you that lovely sort of warm flavours and uh, they're available, but you also need the right kind of environment, how to actually protect in particular the wind blowing over the area and maximising the available sun so that you can have that tropical effect as well as tropical plants. Yeah. Hey, Rick, good luck with it. You know, I was um, at a hotel in Brompton recently. I don't frequent many hotels, John. That's a lot. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to say, I, I hear Spencer's been a hotel here and a hotel there. But, um, but uh, just out the window looking into a small garden in Brompton, there was a banana plant grown and a huge hand of bananas on it. And you forget the right environment. Yeah. Bananas grow very well in mm. South Australia. Achilles' heel is usually wind and poor drainage. Yeah, no, it was doing very well. Just a quick text from Colette. She says, I use 80 plus piece straw bales a year and have done for the last 10 years. That's a lot of piece straw. Has been going to the same fodder store all this time and has never come across any of those white snails. Now, that's interesting because it can depend on the source of your, of your piece straw, can't it? There, Spence, and I, I think you know, congratulations for finding uh, somebody who cares. Mm. And often you'll find that the fodder store people, uh, they are very uh, uh, wise and they would be aware that certain areas can have uh, problems and, and they don't want to bring in weed seeds from a certain area and so they are very specific and they will tell you, we get all our hay or straw from a particular farm and they know that farmer and they know know how uh, they control particular weeds or, in this case, snails. And that's tremendous. And I'm hoping that out of this discussion that we create awareness about white snails and the fact that when you buy straw for mulching from a garden outlet, that it could have snails on it. And as a gardener, it's your responsibility to check to see where it comes from. And I would like to think that the gardening industry are listening and put together a code of practice so that they are saying to their members, if you're going to sell hay, uh, can you give a guarantee that it's not contaminated or can you make sure you buy your hay from certain areas? Or if the problem is too bad and there's just so many snails out there and we don't know that, then maybe we need, the nursery industry need to put pressure onto our authorities to come up with home garden control. There's a lot of money spent by PERSA in giving you giving farmers control of snails, and that's their role. And my perception when I went to PERSA to say, John, listen, snails are not a, a home garden problem. It's a problem for farmers and industry. That's where our money goes. My question is, who accepts the responsibility for home gardeners? They're entitled to have some form of, of understanding of, is there a problem out there? How widespread it is? What are the methods of control? Yeah, and so that being the case, you're, you're hopeful that anybody who has come across these white snails um, can report it um, uh, via your, your regular email and you can form a picture as to whether or not it is a problem, and if it is, well, that, that might prompt some action. And if it's not, well, that's good. 
Yes, we go back to the fact that when I went to Persia, they said we don't know how many snails yeah. are out there, all those things that you're just mentioning. We talked about that last week, and Deb and I sort of said, what? they said, we haven't got sufficient information to tell you whether it's a biosecurity problem. Aha, so why don't we find out? And we can do that through the Good Gardening newsletter. This week's newsletter, if you get the newsletter and you'll find the lead story is about the snails, and all you've got to do is click on that link, that'll take you to the survey. Take you five minutes to do the survey, send it in, we will collate it, and we will send that information to Persa, to Saudi, and to the nursery industry. And it may be we need to sort of bypass the agricultural industries and go to Greening Australia. Perhaps it's an environmental issue. And maybe they should take responsibility of taking uh, information that is available to home gardeners. Okay. So first you need to determine the extent of the problem, hence the, um, the, the opportunity for anybody who's come across them to report them. Yeah. So if you don't get the newsletter, uh, it's absolutely free. It goes out every, uh, every Friday on the, newsletter, on the uh, uh, email. And uh, all you've got to do is just Google John Lamb's Good gardening. In fact, if you just put in good gardening, it will come up usually as the first one. And all you've got to do is click on it, and then you'll see. If you want the newsletter, you click on that, put in your email, and you're done. Let's squeeze in a couple more calls if we can. This is Talkback Gardening. We've got about eight minutes and time for a few more calls. one three hundred triple two eight nine one. We head to the Air Peninsula. And is it Shell? Yeah, how are you going? I'm good, thanks, Shell. How are you? Oh, it's nice and sunny for five seconds here. <laughs> oh, that makes a change, doesn't it? <laughs> Make the most of it, kid. We've, we've, been getting, we've been getting smashed with the big weather last night. Oh, really? What part of their peninsula are on? Oh, at the bottom end. Okay. And next to a pine forest, which produces some magnificent mulch, um, not mulch, pot, potting mix and stuff, under the different eucalypts and the pines and, you know, we've got koalas here and stuff. Um and we've got a fairly heavy loam soil that comes down. Now, what I want to... I have a slug issue and there are heaps of little, you know, jibey things in there. Am I better off steaming off some of this mix, which does grow fantastically, grows all sorts of plants, um, or just leave it alone? and just deal with the issues. So well, you're gathering the mulchy material from underneath the trees and using yes. that as potting mix. That's brilliant. Yes, yeah. yes. Okay. So that so should, I don't have to do anything. No, well, that should be a very, very good inform- a good uh, material. Uh, it'll be organic, so as to have lots of carbon in it, then it'll produce lots of humus. That's very, very good for holding on to moisture. Uh, it'll yes. be brilliant for mulching. Um, if you're yes. concerned that it contains uh, critters in there that are going to spread... I, I, unless you can see that there are earwigs, oh, earwigs, well, you're going to get earwigs. Slugs. <laughs> That's big leopard slugs. That's right. Well, yeah, oh, oh, leopard oh, slugs. Horrible. Well, the, the the big leopard slugs are good because they gobble up the other snails. <laughs> oh, do they really? <laughs> yeah, they're the, the, the chooks don't. The chooks don't seem to like them. If you pick them up. Um, and throw them to the chooks. I, I swear they, you know, go into a mode where they start exuding chooks poison. Are, or chooks something. are very discerning, aren't they? They're yeah. amazing. They know what to not, what yep, to eat, yep. and what not to eat. Uh, during the, during the warm weather, uh, a nice hot day, uh, uh, bring in, that's the time to gather it and put it into a heap, and then on a hot day, just scatter it so that you've got a nice layer of five or six centimetre layer of it, and let the sun cook it. 
and uh, semi-sterilise it. So if there's little greeblies in there, uh, you'll get rid of the slugs and anything soft, whereas it, the, uh, a day's baking in the sun is not going to affect the, the quality of the organic matter. And then you just put the heap back again and use it as a mulch as you've done in the past. There you go. Hey, Shell, good luck. I hope that goes well. It sounds like good gear you've got going on around there. Thank you for your call. Five to ten. Uh, someone asks, is the southeast included in the snail survey? Uh, yeah, it'll be very interesting. And if you do, do get the newsletter, it's most important that you put in your location. And the survey asks you, where are you? Okay. Because we need to know. And I suspect that the upper southeast is very alkaline soils. And that is uh, an area that's likely to have lots and lots of snails. So that could be an area not to get your hay or peace draw from. Okay. And uh, another um, text that says, Hind Marsh Island, white conical snails, many of them. Everywhere, yeah. Yeah, yeah. that's right. Yeah, okay. Uh, to Hackham, Lynn, hello. Hello. Um, good morning, both of you. I have uh, an ornamental pear tree. Uh, that I've been given and I've been told I can plant it in only one area uh, which is very, uh, obviously it has a lot of clay there because it pools with water in that whole area. Now what should I do please? I would suggest that it's important that you improve the drainage of the soil. So before you plant, if you bought the tree, just keep it in its container and aim at uh, planting it probably towards the end of uh, winter, but get it in, if you can, before the end of winter. In the meantime, uh, buy some uh, gypsum. You can buy, depending on the the area that you want, but uh, you can buy it by the bag, a little 10-kilogram bag probably would set you up, and spread that over the area that you're going to use for planting at one kilogram to the square metre. That's quite a lot. And seeing that you're going to be using it as a planting area, I'd spread that. And then at the same time, I would also be bringing in some uh, potting mix or some good quality soil. You can get a soil improver and, and put that into the soil. Dig the compost, the material and the gypsum into the top 20 centimetres of soil. And what you should end up with is a raised area. So if it's in a hollow, you need to sort of make sure you reverse the hollow and you have a mound. So if you have a mound, if you have gypsum in the soil and be prepared to put on another application of gypsum in 12 months' time, then you should be able to grow your your ornamental pear tree with satisfaction. Lynn, good luck with that, and um, we'll hope you get plenty of use out of the pool over summer. Squeeze in one more. We'll go to Campbelltown. Hello, Jen. Now, you've got, you've got some seeds from a papaya that you've eaten. Well, I was listening and the chap was asking about a tropical garden. Yeah. I, um, I, uh, when I finished eating my papaya, I, I just threw it underneath the climbing rose. And now I have a two and a half metre papaya tree with fruit that's 10 centimetres long and still flowers. And I want to know, it's next to paving and I'm concerned, is it going to pull up the paving? Should I just leave it? And how big is it going to grow? Wow. My experience in papayas is not great. Um, it's unusual that it's growing, and the fact that it is growing means that you've got a unique little eco-environment. So make the most of that. Um, it, it normally would grow into quite a reasonable-sized tree, but in Adelaide, it certainly won't. I would suggest that you uh, enjoy it, 
let it keep on growing and if it keeps on flowering and fruiting, enjoy those. You won't find it. It'll grow into a, a massive big tree. But if it does get out of, st- out of size, then you can trim it back to keep it at the size you want to. Good luck with that, Jen. You know, I had a uh, high-set house in Townsville with a papaya outside the, outside the kitchen window. So that's how tall it was. And um, it would regularly be populated with green frogs. <laughs> yeah, it was fantastic. Oh, oh, lovely. I just lovely, loved lovely. it, yeah. yeah. yeah no, no, it's nice to hear mm. the, the, the oddball things, the things that you know, do happen in gardens, and it's nice to share that information. I think that's about it for me this week, uh, Spence. Lovely working with you nice again. Nice to talk to you too, And Tom. until that, uh, next week, uh, for all the gardeners out there, let me say, good gardening.